I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. Hello. Welcome back to the Loyal Sons Podcast, presented by Cable Faithful. That's at Cable Faithful on Twitter. Follow us there and follow us here for pit sports content you won't want to miss. If you love the color royal blue and hate the screen pass, this is the place for you. The Loyal Sons Podcast. Your sad and dreary place to commiserate about pit athletics. Today is... Well, it doesn't really matter. Time is an illusion. Joy is meaningless and unobtainable. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Squid and Dylan. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Welcome to our uh, pitching session. I've been better. I've been much better. Uh, Specifically the previous four to five weeks, I've I've been better than I am today. Uh, not, not, Not a great Monday. We had our fun, but we came back down to earth, crashing hard. I think I threw around the P word a little too much. I was looking forward to Tuesday night when uh, that committee came out with their initial rankings a little bit too much. And now reality has set in, and we're here. I think it's suffice to say that the entire city of Pittsburgh and the entire Pitt fan base... Uh, read its press clippings a little bit too much the past couple weeks, and uh, we were on our high horse. It was it was fun, gentlemen. It was fun. We had fun. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Fun is most important. So, why don't we actually talk about the game a little bit? If we must. Mm, we Kind of have to. It's the whole point of this entire podcast. So, <clears throat> Pitt lost 38-34 to on Saturday to the Miami Hurricanes. And uh, what was kind of Pitt fans' worst nightmares after the Western Michigan, came, Western Michigan game uh, come back to life. Um, we were gashed on defense. We didn't make any adjustments. It was basically death by a thousand paper cuts, and uh, despite throwing for 520 yards, Kenny made enough mistakes that we were not able to bounce back. Uh, What were your guys' observations from the game on Saturday? Um, I think, you know, it hurts because, well, for a lot of reasons, obviously Pitt was riding high. Um, This was just another chance to really solidify uh, our spot as the front runner in the Coastal, and... Not as much that they lost, but just how they lost. There were so many opportunities for Pitt to really take control of the game. Um, you know, they came out flat on defense, just letting up big play after big play early. And just, unfortunately, that was just a big enough hole for us to not be able to claw out of, even even with plenty of opportunities to win it at the end. That's an observation I made as well. Um, Pitt collectively coming out flat, it seemed like, Miami showed up to play, and they were out for blood. Uh, and I, I noticed it because Pitt fans kept 
calling for phantom targeting and uh, unnecessary roughness penalties when it was just Miami guys laying wood and, you know, the Panthers kind of coming out a little soft like they expected to just kind of walk to victory. I think facing a couple of bad quarterbacks in a row uh, blanketed the problems that showed during Western Michigan. I mean, we faced, was it Sims from Georgia Tech? He not a good passer, not a good offense. Burmeister, he's a bomb. Ugalele, I didn't say his name right, but he's a bomb too. Van Dyke isn't a great quarterback, but he's competent. And they came in with a great offensive game plan and took advantage of our glaring uh, holes on defense. So we have some high-powered offenses coming up, so I am worried. For me, that is that was the most glaring part of this game. Um, that Western Michigan wasn't the fluke. Us shutting down a series of very piss-poor quarterbacks was the fluke. This is the second time that we have played a competent quarterback this year, and the second time we have been absolutely gashed and looked unable to do anything against a passing attack. Good thing we have uh, Howell, uh, Armstrong, and... Possibly Hartman still on the schedule. Not looking forward to the Virginia game, but there's a possibility that Brennan Armstrong broke his ribs Saturday night. Might not play, but there's no diagnosis yet. That's just wishful thinking that he broke his ribs and is out for a month. We can only hope. Yeah, I, I think at this point, can't feel too confident against any teams that have, have good quarterback play. And, um, I mean, UVA let up 66 points against BYU, so Pitt will be able to score, but, I mean, will, will we be able to stop them? I don't know. We haven't really been able to show it so far. Um, but not to jump so far ahead. I, we've, we've got to take it one game at a time. I think we've learned our lesson. Have we? <laughs> We're going to start out 2-0 next year and do the same thing, aren't we? No, I. what, what I found deeply worrying is... Uh, Narduzzi's biggest knock for a lot of years has been, you know, as, as good of a defensive coordinator as he is, he's incapable of making adjustments. You know, basically, if we're getting gashed doing something, he doesn't say, all right, what do we need to change to stop it? He says, we'll just do the thing that we've been doing, but, like, better. Better. And I, I think that reared its head again this week. Um, I don't know how many teams are going to rip us apart on wide receiver screens, but it's just not something we we adjust to. We're, teams are going to see that we like to leave our corners on islands, and they're going to attack that, and we just don't do anything about it. I think something that we took for granted was DeMar Hamlin. Hardest position in the field is that safety spot. Hamlin was good enough to hold his ground. He wasn't amazing by any stretch, but he was making plays. and He was making tackles in the open field. Eric Hallett was not. Uh, he didn't get much help, but he was picked on quite a bit. And that's kind of what this defense has been. Unless you are solid everywhere, and especially that position, we get gashed. We saw it early in his tenure. We thought, oh, we'll get his guys in there. And there was success. The defense did get better. But when we faced those 
top offenses and top quarterbacks, it's very little margin for error. You know, last week when we were, you know, in the planning stages of the Coastal Costume Party, I suggested that uh, Hallett should be a doormat for Halloween. Um, and we decided against it, but I think that would have been a little too on the nose. I'm I'm not going to harp on how bad the defense played. They played very bad. I will say, if you would have told me this immediately after the game, I wouldn't have believed you. But they only scored seven points in the second half. That's Of all the crazy things that happened in that game, that is the most unbelievable to me. It felt like they were still moving the ball effectively. It felt like they were still gashing us. But somehow the defense did somewhat pick it up in the second half. There was still, obviously, the, the big play at the end of the game, you know, allowing them to pick up 17 yards when they're backed up on their one-yard line. Um, that, that's the type of play that a really good defense needs to make and not allow it to happen. Um, but they did clean it up a little bit in the second half. But so maybe maybe Dews did make some adjustments after he had already given up 31 points. In a half. In a half. Um, the sad part was, like we just mentioned, the defense, they did make some stops, and the offense had three tries at the end of the game to – tie it up or take the lead, and we punted. We kicked a field goal from the five-yard line, and we threw an interception. That is very depressing, as I'm pretty sure Narduzzi today said that they had the most explosive plays in that game out of any game this year. They had 17 explosive plays. They did not have an answer for our offense, and... I don't know. I think Pickett made a bad decision or two. Uh, we gave up some untimely sacks, and I think the play calling down towards the red zone was really bad for a change. That was one of our strengths. We were one of the better red zone teams in the country, but we were coming away with nothing. What it the most? I think the, uh, I mean, Love Kenny Pickett, not going to knock him. They didn't lose this game because of Kenny Pickett through 519 yards, but I think you can point to those two interceptions. And even if one of those doesn't happen, uh, I think probably say Pitt probably wins this game. The one at the end of the first half, um, huge swing. You know, even if Pitt doesn't go down and punch it in, um, still going, going into half, even if they were down seven, but that giving them the ball, the return into Pitt territory and getting a touchdown on the board before the half, that I felt like that really took took the air out of the sails. And then, obviously, the one late. I mean, Jordan Addison was open on both of them. On the first half one, Jordan Addison should have scored a touchdown if, if Kenny would have saw him, and he should have scored a touchdown on the second one. I don't know where the miscommunication was, but um, they were huge, and, that, and that's, that was really the difference in the game at the end of the day. And, and we'll... Uh... We'll go more in-depth on Kenny's performance in the Heisman Watch segment, but suffice to say, he threw some picks. He he made some decisions in this last game that I never thought I'd see from Kenny again, so that was a little bit alarming. Um, but John brought up a really good point. Pass Pro looked significantly worse than it had at any other point this season. Um Kenny was running for his life. He got sacked more this week than he has in any other game this season. And I can't help but think that part of that is because there was no effort to establish the run at any point. Yeah, I mean, it, it just let Miami pin their ears back and just get after him. 
Um, and, you know, I, I do kind of get it. You're playing from behind the, the, most of the game, so you're going to throw the ball more. Um, but, you know, just, what, 13 carries for the running backs, for the three running backs? It's, that's not enough. Uh, and it, it showed the last few weeks Pitt was able to run the ball, and that was really, you know, having a balanced offense. The offensive attack was was really promising, and to see see not really much of an effort made this way, especially down at the goal line. I think that is the, is the toughest one. Instead of you know running the ball a couple times when you're at the five yard line, uh, throw a fade, then you try to run a trick play, put the ball into your your tight end's hands to throw the ball. Who wanted um, that to happen? I think we just confirmed that Mark Whipple is a listener of the podcast. We put on our wish list. Uh, was that last week or the week before? A couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago for our wish list, we wanted Crawl to throw a touchdown past the picket. Whipple must have been listening. and uh, Yeah, I don't think on our wish list we said we wanted to be the most blatantly obvious uh, Philly special that you could ever run. Like, Jesus Christ, man. I think every football program from Pee Wee on up to the NFL has run some variation of that play since Philly scored on it in the Super Bowl. And at this point, I think if you see a quarterback walk up to the line of scrimmage and turn like he's going to go tell his tackle something, you know that they are running some sort of reverse where he is going to you know, run a banana route to the pylon. Not to mention Pitt has ran, like, arguably... Other than the, the Super Bowl one, maybe the most famous uh, Philly special yeah. run by all these and football we, programs. We never line up under center, so whenever Pickett walks up to the line, they're like, okay, well, this has got to be something. They've been running plays and passing for the shotgun like 55 times. Not, not going to draw any red flags. I'm always a fan of a good trick play, uh, but not one that you have, like, very iconically already run to a T. Um, that, like, I think everybody in the stadium knew what was happening the second Kenny went up towards the line. And I... We need to see some fake Philly specials. We need to see a yeah. quarterback like, walk up, talk. Mix, mix it up. And know. then uh, they just snap and go the other way and, like, disregard Maybe, maybe Benny Davis keeps that ball, fakes the yeah. pitch. The or maybe, like, Pickett goes up and, like, Says something to his tackle and just walks back and just runs like a normal play. No one would see that coming. Like, oh, 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 quarterback, Philly special, and he just goes back. And they're so thrown off by not being the Philly special, you catch him off guard with like a run up the middle. I know my expectations of like pocket presence for a tight end can't be that high because, again, Lucas Kroll is a 6'7, 270-pound tight end. Uh, but good God, man, like, he could have done just about anything else on that play than what he did, and it would have been successful. I remember watching it live and thinking, man, I feel like he could have run that in really easily. Or Addison was very open across the middle. If he just, like, like shot-putted the ball over a defender to him, that's a touchdown. He just blasted out at the back of the end zone. I watched a, a clip a little bit before we recorded this, and he... He legitimately could have fallen forward uh, and scored from where he threw it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it hurts to watch uh, looking back at it. I mean, we, like you said, I don't know how much we can blame Lucas Kroll for uh, the lack of pocket presence. Yeah, I'm going to blame it more on running a predictable trick play and taking the ball out of your Heisman candidate 
quarterback's hands with the game on the line. Yeah. Whipple was looking a little too much for that Heisman moment. He was. Something they could show the ceremony. (laughs) Respect it, but not when you're down seven and you need a touchdown. That hurt, and then, I mean, the non-safety call... That hurt. I, I knew we were going to get to officiating at some point. I'm just proud of us for not making it the focus. But, wow, man. There were two reviews during that game that were unbelievably questionable and incredibly pivotal. They were bad all day. Um, you know, Pitt had 107 penalty yards. I, if you would have told me during the game that they had 200, I would have believed you. Um, the the roughing the passer calls... Few of those were shaky, really soft, um, and then the non-safety call. It is what it is. There wasn't a there wasn't a call to overview it or overturn it, but it if, really felt like. I just don't know how you don't call that a safety on the field. Home crowd, they're loud, and the guy got tackled very deep in the end zone. I don't know how if you're a referee, unless you look definitively see this guy got the ball out, which there's no way they saw. I feel like refs call that a safety, like. 99 times out of 100 just off of just instinct. If, if that was called a safety on the field, there was no way in hell that was getting overturned. No. And then Pitt has the ball down two with four minutes left in great field position. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that. look, I don't want to blame the rest. Pitt shouldn't have left it in their hands, but that call goes the other way, and Pitt probably wins the game. So, And then the other one was the interception. Obviously... Kenny threw it right to the guy. There was some miscommunication, and, you know, he caught it, but he did not maintain possession through through the entirety of the catch. They gave one to Taysier Mack early on the first possession, which I thought was kind of similar, so it kind of set a precedent. But I, I watched it today. I still don't think the, the Miami defender caught that ball. Did, did it look like he lost the ball on his hip a little bit as he was rolling over yeah. and then maintained possession and then lost it again? When they were showing the replay, I thought we, I mean, obviously we had our biases, uh, you know, been out all day, drinking all day, had our biases as to what way we wanted that call to go. But I thought we all felt fairly confident that he did not secure the ball. He was losing it a little bit when he was going to the ground and they popped up and the ball was out. Even the announcers live um, were like, Whoa, he blew it. Williams dropped it. And then they said, oh, they're going to call it a catch on the field. So, once again, don't want to blame officiating, but there were several pivotal calls where if, if they go the other way, 50-50 calls that if they go the other way, that we're sitting here saying, wow, Pitt squeaked out a W. They don't like calling targeting against Pitt either. Clemson, we saw that late hit targeting call get picked up. Lucas Crawl got hit high and was looked like he was pretty banged up for a while when a Miami guy stood over him. Picked up the targeting, no taunting, and uh, yeah, had to pump that one away. I was just under the impression that when you're the conference's last hope to make a little bit of postseason money, uh, that you get a couple of those calls. Not, you know, hey, what what can we do to to you know cut off our nose to spite our face? Sort of like West Virginia back in uh, the backyard brawl and Panthers took them down thirteen to nine. That phantom. Holding call and little Sean McCoy touchdown run. Ruffs doing all they could to keep worst holding call. In it. Yeah, worst holding call in the history of uh, organized football. Oh. Yeah, it it was a tough one, man. I, 
I hate to say I told you so. However, last week I said something about what really worries me about Pitt is slow starts. They're just going to find themselves down two scores in the first ten minutes of a game. Uh, Pitt actually scored on its first possession for the first time this year. Uh, They drove the ball right down Miami's throat, had all of us thinking it was going to be a short day, Um, could not put anything together on their second or third drives, and all of a sudden Pitt was getting the ball back for only the fourth time down two scores. And that was something I was worried about, and it, it happened defensively kind of exactly how I envisioned it, us giving up like three really big plays um, because we're susceptible that, to that. We we play a, a really brash form of defense that leaves corners on islands and requires everyone to be responsible for their own assignments. It makes us super susceptible to um, splash plays and especially trick plays, and that's exactly what we saw. We went down 21-7 to on a, on a couple long balls, a long run, and another... God damn flea flicker. And it was a goofy flea flicker. Three three different guys touched the ball. I, just, I don't... And we were talking about this earlier before we started recording. They weren't even fooled by the flea flicker. No! The tight end got open and two defenders went with one receiver. The receiver who was not as far downfield and the tight end just kind of snuck out and he was wide open. If I'm Duke's offensive coordinator, I'm scheduling a flea flicker once per drive because... Even if Pitt sees it coming at that point, there's still like a 50% chance you'll get a guy leaking free or some craziness. I feel like we never stop lead workers. Why not, dude? You have nothing to lose. Your team sucks. Break out all the trick plays. So, as much as that loss hurt, at the end of the day, Pitt does still control their own destiny in the ACC Coastal, which allows that loss to... You know, we can sit here and say, you know, it's not a season killer, but it just made things a whole lot tougher and a whole lot messier. Um, Pitt really doesn't have much room for error at this point. You know, Miami would hold the tiebreaker. I don't know if they'll win out, but they don't exactly play murderer's row down the stretch here. Um, and, you know, if Pitt were to drop one to UVA, you know, UVA would then hold the tiebreaker um, with only one ACC game left after that. So, um not a lot of room for error for the Panthers. and But I still think they can win out. I think every game is winnable from here on out, but I, I don't know. It's, it's going to be it's gonna be a stressful last month and a half of the season. It's a weird feeling knowing that we are feeling as shitty as we do right now, but at the same time, there's a pretty good chance that we get double-digit double wins. <laughs> but there's still a pretty good chance that we get double-digit wins and win the ACC. That's not their own possibility. We're in the driver's seat. And even getting there and losing, and we get like 9-10 wins in a good bowl game, we'd all sign up for that before the year. But we're, yeah, we, we're down right now because we got so high up. We, we only feel the way we do right now because we've been able to move the goalposts back so far this season. And I... I 
we should have won both of the games that we lost. This could very well be an undefeated football team. But the fact of the matter is they're still in very good position to exceed our wildest dreams for this year. I will say, though, I do think this team is dropping another game. Uh, we have not beaten a decent quarterback yet, and we are going to face at least three if we end up in the ACC championship. So that worries me. But as long as one of them isn't a Virginia, we can we still have a pretty good chance of making the ACC championship. Yeah, we could potentially weather that storm and get in at nine and three. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to start uh, counting my my whatever the saying is: chickens. Counting your chickens before they hatch. hatch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's let's not do that because we've been doing that for about a month and a half already. No, I knew it was bad. Whenever one somebody on Pantelair said that Narduzzi deserves an extension, and two, whenever I found myself comparing a one-loss Georgia team's resume to a one-loss Pitt team's resume. Whenever I was typing that in my notes app, I thought, what are we doing? This I, is going to end poorly. I had a feeling this was the week we dropped one when people really started discussing, okay, who do we need to lose what game for us to be in the playoff? Are we a more attractive playoff candidate if... OSU has a second loss if, you know, this happens. One loss, Pitt, or undefeated Cincinnati? That was the question. We just got too far ahead of ourselves. Just win the Coastal, get us to Charlotte, and let's go from there. Please beat Duke. Please beat Duke. Beat the piss out of Duke, please. Kenny Pickett threw for 519 yards and three touchdowns. However, he also had two pretty ugly picks in a loss against Miami. How's that going to impact his Heisman standing? Let's discuss. This is Heisman Watch. Alright guys, pretty impressive stat line from Kenny Pickett, over 500 yards passing. Uh, however, it looks like his Heisman odds from a betting perspective have taken a bit of a nosedive. Uh, what do you guys make of the impact this Miami loss is going to have on Kenny's Heisman odds and uh, any other observations from his performance on Saturday? It's weird because he threw for 500 plus yards and overall had a good game, but his odds got worse, and at this point I think it's going to take a lot for him to actually make it to New York City for the finale. I think he's on the outside looking in now, and it would take a Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud uh, like meltdown game for him to get back in. And I don't see that happening because they're the quarterbacks for Alabama and Ohio State, so... Yeah, Bryce Young, the leader on DraftKings at plus 180, CJ Shroud plus 450, Matt Corral plus 500, Kenneth Walker the third plus 500, Caleb Williams, spare me, at plus spare 800. Spare me. Um, I, I, I'm guessing there's maybe just a lot of money coming in on him. That's all I can think. But Yeah. Um, and then Kenny Pickett all the way down at plus 1800, um, which is a decent drop off from those top five. So... Um, I agree. He's probably on the outside looking in. You know, 
maybe a little bit has to do with now, you know, Pitt's unranked. Uh, maybe uh, the odds makers in, in Vegas don't think Pitt will make it to 10 wins this season. Um, you know, a, a combination of all those things. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be tough for, for Kenny to to get the New York. Um, but if they win out and he continues to put up, I mean, video game stats, he might be able to get back up in that top three. But I think the chance of him taking home that trophy is just about gone, unfortunately. We play some pretty abysmal defenses, so I don't doubt that we'll be able to put up those video game numbers. But right now, if you look at it, Pickett is tied for fourth with 26 touchdowns, and he is sixth with 2,700 passing yards. He has 300 more passing yards than Bryce Young, same touchdown reception ratio, 500 more passing yards than Stroud. He has more touchdowns, same amount of interceptions. So he's got him beat in the stats, but uh, the whole playing for Pitt is holding back. I have an interesting question for you guys. Has a player who has not appeared in the college football playoff won the Heisman in the playoff era? Because I'm trying to think of one, and I can't. I know we, we kind of referenced Robert Griffin III Lamar Jackson. and Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson, he didn't make the playoff. That was in the playoff era? Correct. Not right. on team. So, well, that's, that's interesting because there's that kinda... precedent for a nine-win quarterback who didn't make the playoff winning it. It's possible, but Lamar Jackson was also just like a different breed. Yeah, a generational team. college player. Yeah, I, I'm just getting a little frustrated at this point because obviously I want Pitt to win, but there's a small part of me that just wants Kenny to succeed more because we watched years where Pitt was frustrating and where we basically had to throw in the towel on carrying this much four games in and it became okay it's root for Kenny Kenny's success is our success so you know there's a part of us that that wants to see him succeed above all else um and it's just incredibly frustrating uh to see him held to a completely different standard than every other Heisman hopeful on that list. Bryce Young and Matt Corral have been forgiven their mediocre performances. Matt Corral just had a game where he threw for 280, no touchdowns and a pick, and he still gets to stay, what, third on that list? Bryce Young is going to have to actively lose this award because he is Alabama's quarterback. Caleb Williams is climbing you know, the odds board because he plays quarterback and he's talented and he's got a white OU on his helmet. I'll say this. I think Pitt fans need to just change the Kenny for Heisman campaign to Kenny's to NYC campaign because Kenneth Walker is being disrespected too. I jumped on the Kenneth Walker bandwagon after him running all over Michigan. I love seeing that. So I think we should uh, mix it up, get some new uh, teams represented in New York City. So send Kenneth Walker and Kenneth Pickett. Oh no, I'm, I'm on it too. I don't even care about Michigan State, but I also really feel like Kenneth Walker is being deeply disrespected. He's carrying a uh, program that hasn't been very good in the last couple of years to an undefeated record and a possible appearance in the college football playoff as a running back. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the best quarterback on the best team award at this point. You know, it's although Devontae Smith won it last year, but that was an outlier. He was one of the most ridiculous uh, college receivers I'd ever seen. That being said, um, Walker scoring five touchdowns in a top ten matchup has to be like the best performance we've seen this season, and he just yeah. slightly got a little bump in his Heisman odds. Um, but it, I, I've kind of come to terms with Bryce Young's going to win it at this point because Alabama's not going to lose before the Heisman ceremony, and Young's going to continue to put up good numbers, and it's just the easy pick for Heisman voters. And What's I, Bryce Young's Heisman moment? Just throwing for like 350 yards against LSU's like 75th-ranked defense in the country. I, I don't know. It's He's, incredibly lame. It's, it's going to uh, be so lame. It's going to be John Mechie beating some sorry loser by 40 yards and Bryce Young putting it in the same zip code as him. That's going to be his Heisman moment. So uh, maybe we start looking for Kenny Kenny for Maxwell. Kenny for Davey O'Brien. I'm not ruling out Narduzzi being really pissed off about the loss and hanging like 75 on Miami. So maybe we'll get like Seven touchdowns this week. On then, Duke. Yeah, on Duke. And then uh, we got Virginia. Brandon Armstrong might come back. That might be a 75-67 to 67 shootout. Pickett throws for like seven more. And then, uh, honestly, why not just keep riding the train? Let Pickett sling it 50 times a game at that point. I mean, we're not going to make the playoff. Might as well get some hardware. I mean, the. I feel like... The damage has been done with those two interceptions he had. I mean, we touched on it earlier, but those were egregious. There were those were two plays that could have been touchdowns, even though even though the first interception was at like the forty or the fifty. Addison was running free across the middle, and honestly, I know he had five hundred yards, and he was the only thing keeping us in that football game. Pickett was missing guys left and right wide-open receivers the entire game. And I I really couldn't believe it because he's been so on top of things this year. But, I mean, I, w- I was looking for open guys, you know, just from the stands and, and was really shocked by some of the reads he made. I don't know. I don't know if I had that same viewing experience. Um, I would have to go back and watch it again. I do know that the, the picks were bad and... Uh, we had some drops as well. Lucas Crawl had some pretty big drops. Um, we haven't brought him up yet, but Jordan Addison, I mean, we brought up that Kenny missed him, but just his performance in general, every week he just amazes me more and more. Um, he's just the best player on the field. Uh, no one can watch him. I feel like he's open every single play, and like 8 for 145 yards seemed too low for how open he was almost all game. Um, coming off a concussion, too. Coming off a concussion. The game, well, we weren't even sure if he would play. I remember thinking in the first quarter that um, if Addison and Izzy weren't weren't able to go and weren't cleared, that we would have been in so much trouble. Um, so, they, they couldn't save us on Saturday. I guess just to round it out, are we now reevaluating our expectations for, you know, the kind of hardware... Kenny can get in the kind of draft buzz we can expect. Have we moved the goalposts, or do we still think you know some of these things that we were hoping for might be attainable? I think if they went out and play in the ACC championship, um, win the ACC championship, 
obviously all very big ifs. But if he can put up big numbers, I I think he's still got to be right there. The, we can't overreact uh, to this one game because, like we said, Matt Corral was uh, he's getting a pass on less than less than impressive performance. Some of these other guys are. I think if Pitt keeps winning and gets their gets themselves back up in the rankings, uh, that's what's going to be important to voters. And hopefully, we can see Kenny in New York City. Um, he'll definitely be at one of the award shows. You know, when they hand out the Maxwell, Davy O'Brien, mm-hmm. or whatever the other auxiliary awards are that no one really cares nearly as much about, um, but sometimes have more logical voters voting for those awards. Uh, so yeah. I, think, I think he'll get something. ACC Player of the Year? Oh, yeah, definitely there. I would say so as well. I don't think this game is going to kill his draft stock either because I think that's also something that's a little bit less reactionary than, like, awards voting and awards odds uh, right. because it's... I think more careful evaluators, um, you know, they know that these college kids are going to make mistakes, but they've seen enough tape to say, yeah, this is, this is still a first round quarterback. Um, so still have high hopes there. I have been seeing more mock drafts with him going to the Steelers though. And honestly, if this all goes to shit and Kenny ends up on the Steelers, it will all have been worth it. I ordered my Kenny Pickett Steelers jersey about a month ago. I'm waiting for that to come in. Finally going to convert the second half on a third down. 0 for 6. And it will. It's Carter. Spinning free. Headed for the end zone. He's in for the touchdown. Malik Carter on the strike by Kenny Pickett from 26 yards. Back by popular demand is the Mount Washington segment. This week we'll be drafting the Mount Washington of... Worst losses in the Pat Narduzzi era. How fun. That's right. This isn't all fun and games over here on this podcast. This is the truth. You get the cold, hard truth. And this... Except for the last couple weeks where we convinced ourselves that we were a playoff team. Yeah, whatever. But this is what we get this week. Because we don't deserve anything else. We're going to take our medicine and relive all... The bad losses. We're going to find out where this bad loss landed. We'll do an uplifting Mount Washington when we deserve it. But this is what you get. So strap in. Who's who's the first pick? I think John went last last time. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and take the first pick. All right, so we'll just do reverse order. I'll be three, Dill, you're two. Sounds good. There were a lot of heartbreaking losses since 2015 when our good friend Pat Narduzzi took the helm. For me, this one is easy. This is this is not only one of the worst losses of the Pat Narduzzi era, this is one of the worst days of my life. I was miserable, and yeah, we'll leave it at that. It was the Penn State 2018 game. Oh. It rained, it was cold, and we lost by 45. I don't want to talk too much about this, but uh, I remember leaving the stadium early. I do not leave games early. I usually stay to the end, like, as much as possible. But I remember looking at my dad and saying, we need to get out of here. We left. And I was, we walked a mile in the rain to our parking garage, only to get chirped at by these college girls in the elevator with us. And I was just beside myself. I had no words. I just wanted to get in the car and drive off the Clemente Bridge. 
I was on my couch before the clock hit zero of that game. I was there as well. And I remember the whole first half thinking, like, wow, we're really in this game. And then, I mean, we all remember the second half. Pitt gets pinned deep within its own five. Chris Jadulu, 20-yard punt. Penn State punches it in. Pitt gets pinned inside its own five again. Chris Jadulu, 30-yard punt to, like, the Pitt 40. Penn State punches it in. He dropped the Rinse and too. repeat. I think that happened four or five times. We just couldn't get the ball out of our end zone. And all they had to do was walk it 30 yards in. Yeah, it was just pouring. It was miserable. It was cold. And on top of that, we got our heads blown clean off our shoulders. Um, so I'm going to pick. And, and to clarify, you know, we don't have a very clear set of criteria here other than how bad did you feel after the game. Um, so I'm going to go with the Virginia Tech game in 2019. 28 to nothing in Lane Stadium. We were there for it. Big trip, big road trip. And half of our group left before halftime. Me, Squid, one or two other soldiers stuck around through the third quarter. It was pouring. It was cold. Pitt could not get a first down. We walk out of the stadium only to hear the PA announcer announce over the loudspeaker that number 12 had been ejected for targeting. And, <laughs> then, on top. and then right when our lift was supposed to get there, they shut down any incoming traffic into Lane Stadium parking lot, and we could not get a lift, and we walked a mile and a half in the rain in Blacksburg, Virginia, down a back road. The only About a mile into that walk, I just started laughing because I was like, felt like I was hallucinating because I was like, there is no way I can ever hit a lower point than I am at right now. Soaking wet, just got blown out by Virginia Tech. Any coastal coastal aspirations were out the window, and we had a staring down a six-hour drive home in the morning. That's that why was, that was my first pick. That was the flattest I've ever seen a pit team come out. Well, John took my 1-1. I think that was everyone's 1-1. Yep. Uh, that was the worst single like sporting experience of my entire life. Um but for my for my first pick, I'm gonna stick with Penn State. Uh, 2019, when we lost 17 to 10, Pat Narduzzi kicked a like 18 yard field goal from the one down a score to make it a one score game, and they missed. <laughs> and they missed. I mean, that was just cowardly, chicken and analytically shit. a pathetic decision. I mean that that is the single. Worst decision Narduzzi has ever made, and it's not particularly close. Um, that that game stung. Honestly, I originally had that at two, but I didn't want to give uh, Penn State the the pleasure of being number one and two on our list here. So that's it's why. cool. At least they've never single handedly kept us out of the playoff. Zing. There we go. Uh, and then I get the wraparound on the snake. Um, this one, I it definitely isn't up there. In terms of misery, um, but just in terms of stupid, obnoxious pit losses, um, it's definitely up there for me. Uh, the 2016 pinstripe bowl against Northwestern. Uh, that was frustrating. Just, just fru- like it, it wasn't like an emotional crater, but it was frustrating. That was 
Pitt's best chance in years to finish ranked. They went into the game uh, number 23. They had beaten the number five team in the country and the number two team in the country that would go on to win the championship. They came out. Uh, Justin Jackson ran all over them. And then even though our starting quarterback went down. And, and ben, running back. James and Connor. running back. Connor went down too. Peterman and Connor both go down in this game. And we bring out Ben DiNucci. We still have a shot to win this game. And DiNucci threw the two most disinterested interceptions I have ever seen in my entire life. He had the worst body language of a player in like a do or die situation I've ever seen and just lobbed two balls directly to safeties on drives that would have put us ahead. Am I remembering correctly that he did throw one pass that was a dime to Orndorff? What, that Orndorff dropped, hand? which would have been the game winner. Yes, I will give him credit on that. And then the next play, he threw the pick. He threw like yes, an abysmal like <laughs> back shoulder fade. Okay, yeah, that that was that was frustrating. Um, so my second pick, ooh, these are also painful. Um, so I'm gonna go with NC State last year, in 2020. Um, Pitt's riding high, 3-0, ranked, coming off a big win against Louisville, which at the time felt like a big win, but Louisville actually just stunk. Um, so did we. So did we. And uh, we, we have a lot of mojo going, big crowd to watch Pitt take on NC State. We rented out a bar. Yeah. Which was unheard of at that point of COVID. Correct. And Devin Leary was the backup the previous week, but... And State had NC State had inserted him as the starter, and he absolutely torched us. Um, pick it through for over 400 yards, and it was just like such a typical wow. They are absolutely going to go down and and beat us, and and we're going to go three and one. And this magical season that was supposed to be, I mean, that was that was the tipping point. That's when things started to you know spiral out of control. I'll never forget. The dropped Taysier Mac two point conversion that would have put us up eight, but instead we were only up by six. And then NC State marches down on our stellar defense. They made us look like Swiss cheese, and they took the lead and heartbreak. Yeah, that's fun. Why did we pick this topic again? It was fitting because we're masochists. All right, Squibble Terry. This is tough. One of them I know for sure I'm going to take, and that's North Carolina in 2016. The infamous uh, Ryan Switzer game. I I actually almost picked that one. I didn't look at his stats. I don't want to search that game, but it felt like he had 400 all-purpose yards. Uh, Back when we had the awesome offense and the defense that could stop nobody. Uh, UNC converted a couple fourth downs late in the game. Couple, I think they went. I think there were legitimately four on that last drive. Four fourth downs that we got them to. And Trubisky threw. He was just running for his life and finding Ryan Switzer opened. Then it comes down to a goal line stand and what you know, the back shoulder fade. Last play of the game. His time expires. The only thing worse than a player gashing pit is that player then going on to be a stealer and just being a complete liability. Yeah. Nobody like Ryan Switzer. I have a feeling this won't be UNC's last time on this list. No. They were bad. Uh, that 2016 team had so much potential if they could 
like deflect a pass. Enough on that. This is where it gets tough. I'm going to go with. Oh boy. Don't want to go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to Western Michigan. Yeah. Uh, that was. I was worried I'm taking recency bias into it, but no, this is the worst team that Pat Narduzzi has lost to and in arguably the worst fashion. We let this mediocre team torch us. Uh, I will never think of RPOs the same. And uh, yet for a while we thought this was going to keep us out of the playoff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a loss to a MAC team, and especially a, a, in a season where we had... I mean, this people were ready for Narduzzi to be fired that day. So, yep. uh, this... This honestly could have went a little higher. Okay, I'm going to go. Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to go with uh, Miami in 2019. The 16-12 to loss to Miami at Heinz Field. People forget about that one. Pitt failed to score an offensive touchdown that game. Kicked four field goals. And, I mean, it was just all-around ugly game. And it kind of set Pitt back in terms of competing for the Coastal. Um, it was just a bad loss to take early in the season. And just to be so useless on offense, it, it was demoralizing. So that's uh, I'm going to go with that one. Left a couple on the board for me. Um, 2018, uh, one score loss to number five Notre Dame. We lost 19-14. to 14. We were riding high. Um, I think we went up 14-6 to because Mo French had a 99-yard kickoff return first play of the second half, and then we just kind of got suffocated out the rest of the game. If I recall correctly, uh, Pitt could not stop Miles Boykin or Chase Claypool on jump balls. Um, actually, our guest will allude to this game without mentioning it um, in the interview, but just another game that we couldn't close because our, our defense at that time was not up to snuff. And uh, it would have just been a massive win for that team uh, that would go on to play in the ACC championship. I'll always remember Narduzzi uh, trotting Jeff George out there as the punter for that <laughs> fake punt. So bad. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was something. I, I'm going to have to disagree with you, David. That's not a bad loss, though. Pitt wasn't supposed to win that game. Yeah, but when you come that close to a major upset of a top five team, and especially just beating Notre Dame in general, and you are controlling the game uh, for the first half and one play. Um, it hurt. I'll give it to it you. Hurt. It hurt. It hurt. All right, for my last pick, I'm going to go 2018, 24-3 loss to Miami. We were... Ranked number 24, we were finally getting some respect uh, for being the ACC Coastal Champions. We had just run through Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Wake Forest. I mean, run through them. We go to Miami, one last inconsequential game, just another feather in our cap before we square off against Clemson, need a little momentum, and they just kicked the shit out of us. Yeah, that was bad. Jimmy Morrissey got hurt in the Wake Forest game on the uh, on the 
throwback to one of the linemen, scored, fell into Jimmy's leg, fractured his ankle or whatever it was. And then um, a lot of people around the program will say that Morrissey getting hurt basically ended any chance Pitt had of winning the Miami game because uh, they, they just weren't ready to replace him. Yeah, so the theme I wanted to go with was less about heartbreak and more we are finally gaining any amount of momentum and then just get punched in the nose with a, with a huge letdown performance. So that's, that's another one there. That one hurt. Uh, yeah, that's a good call. So this one I'm going to pick, um, kind of along the lines of this wasn't as heartbreaking as it was just a terrible loss and probably the worst team Narduzzi's lost to, maybe aside from Western Michigan. I think you could argue that this, this team was worse than Western Michigan. Uh, UNC in 2017, 34-31. Uh, it was a Thursday night game, and UNC finished that season 3-9. and Their other wins were against Western Carolina and Old Dominion. Third win, only ACC win, against Pitt. Larry Fedora owned Pat Narduzzi. I don't know how, but he did. He was probably the reason why Fedora like, didn't get fired sooner. Absolutely atrocious game. Brutal. Squid, you round us out? You got the last pick? This is very sad to see that there's a lot of good picks left on the board. I would hope that there would not be this many bad losses, but there are. And... After some deliberation, I decided to go with the Boston College uh, overtime missed extra point. That was just such a pit way to lose. Kenny Pickett got ankle surgery that night. Uh, he was a soldier. He got us back into that game. It was a slow start against a weak opponent, but we forced overtime thanks to a ridiculously long Alex Kessman field goal, only for him to be the reason why we lost. That's Kessman in a nutshell. <laughs> Kick a 57-yarder to send it to OT, miss the extra point. That's all there is to it. It was the week after we lost to North Carolina State, too, like you mentioned earlier, so it was just back-to-back punches to the nads. Yeah, that's the one I left on the board. That just, that hurt. We, we went into last year so hopeful and lost uh, back-to-back games on failed conversions. Yeah, had to keep someone we were watching the game with putting their foot through the TV. <laughs> had to remind them that Pitt, Pitt was not worth it. I almost picked the ACC championship game. It's pretty crazy that a game that we threw for eight yards didn't make the list, but I guess we weren't expected to win that one, so that was consequential. But yeah, there were, there were some more on there that hurt. Yeah, um... My only remaining honorable mention is um, this past weekend. This hurt. This was bad. The military bowl? Ooh. Watching your team lose to a triple option attack is its own circle of hell. How about that Boston College game in 2019? The last game of the season. Pretty inconsequential game, but to just come and get kind of pushed around by a bad BC team was uh, disheartening. To I remember least. we all were together for that game at the game, and we were leaving the stadium telling ourselves, Pitt is going 7-5 forever. 
nothing matters. And instead of finishing the year with eight wins, finished with seven wins, went to some shit bowl in Detroit against Eastern Michigan. So, great way to end the season. Which we won. Quick land bowl champs, baby. You know what? Maybe I can live with ten wins this year. Nine, even. Maybe. This is the worst idea we've ever had for a segment. I'm not having fun. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you guys. Um, my laptop crashed while we were recording this, and we thought we lost everything. And uh, the three of us were actually very relieved that this would never see the light of the light of day. However, I guess God is not that merciful, so you just had to sit through all of this. If it was all gone, I had Twitter up and was ready to tweet, there's no podcast this week. We tried. We'll try again next week. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Good for you for making it this far. There's no way anyone's still listening. Toward the end of a the clock, they like to run an open set and get a run-out ball screen. Here it comes. Involving Sam Young. But didn't get anything out of it. Down to seven seconds. Fields for three. Oh! Duke out of timeouts. Shire. Shire again. Oh, it would have counted. Please welcome on a very special guest, Cage Galupi, former graduate assistant for recruiting and operations uh, on the Pittsburgh Panthers from 2016 to 2018. Cage, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. was hoping to be coming on this podcast, coming off a win, but we don't always get what we want. And we know that as Panther fans, so pleasure to see you guys and get a chance to talk on the pod either way. Yeah, we, uh, I think we could all be in a better mood right now, but, um, you, you kind of got to stick with the horses that got you here and, and, you know, play with the hand that you're dealt. Those are definitely two contradicting analogies, but we're, we're going to run with it. Uh, so, for, for those who are unfamiliar, um, could you tell us a little bit, one, about yourself, and, and two, about um, how you became a graduate assistant at Pitt? Yeah, a um, little bit about myself, a proud Pitt man, went to University of Pittsburgh, graduated from there, uh, started out, was you know, had an interest in working in the athletic department at Pitt, started in the media relations office as an intern, was doing some work there. Uh, one of the people I was working with there knew I had a background and had an interest in football. They said, you should talk to the staff, see if you there's anything that you can do over there. They're always looking for assistance and recruiting, things of that nature. So my junior year undergrad got involved with the recruiting side of things, started just breaking down some some film, kind of doing some some of that grunt work that needs to be done when evaluating players and ended up hanging on, kind of progressing from there, getting into operations a little bit, and eventually getting a graduate assistant position uh, for my first year out of undergrad. So um, in your time at Pitt, obviously, you know, you get to be on the on the inside of things. You know, we, we can dig the internet, dig through Twitter for all the rumors and stuff that comes through, but you, you got to see it firsthand. Um, what's something that about division one football programs, specifically Pitt, um, that someone who's never actually been around a program doesn't know or wouldn't realize. 
I would say, well, one of the biggest things I got out of working there for three years is you go in and you, know, you think, you know, like a little bit about football. Like, yeah, I played in high school. I, I watch a lot of football. Um, you have no idea how little you know until you're in that building with people who like live, sleep and breathe it and every day. I mean, talking about Chris Narduzzi, a guy that doesn't have a personal life. I mean, he's there at six in the morning, leaving after it's dark every single day, year round, um, and holds his staff to that same standard as well. So I think there's a lot, a lot of things you see. You'll see people on Twitter voice opinions about different things. And it's like, oh, why isn't, you know, so-and-so playing this freshman, you know, four-star guy? Why isn't he getting any looks? And then you're on the inside and you see what this guy's doing in practice. And you're like, if these people only knew what this dude looked like, like you, you'd have a, you'd understand pretty quick why this guy's not even close to getting on the field. So you mentioned a little bit there, you worked with uh, the coaches a lot. Talk about what it was like we're working for coach Narduzzi and his staff and which coaches were you working with the closest? Yeah. Um, Narduzzi, he's what you see in the media is what you get. Um, he's an intense guy. Um, I'm sure that's no surprise to anyone that has followed the program uh, cl- closely at all. Um, his, I, he's a character. He says some funny things, some intentionally, some unintentionally, <laughs> just, uh, his intensity getting the best of them. Uh, things coming in, coming out of his mouth unfiltered. Uh, he's a, he's a fun guy to work with. Um, the whole coaching staff, there's, there's some characters for sure. Um, I worked a little bit with all of them, you know, assistant coaches, you know, Tim Salem's one who's, uh, absolute and and I, that's no surprise to Pitt fans. I think again, people that follow the program know he's a character. Um, lives off Mountain Dew, Red Bull, and just watching football. Um, he football tells, guy. Yeah, you know, he, he. I think he tells his wife, "I love fo- football. Is my first love. Then, then I love you." That's that's what Tim <laughs> Salem is. He's unapologetic about it, and his family they're on board with it too. They're they, his his wife's on board. He knows she knows she knows the deal. Um, you ever make any uh, Mountain Dew runs for Coach Salem? Oh, yeah. He likes to – I believe he likes to crack them open and let them sit overnight before drinking them because he doesn't like the fizz. He likes it to – oh, you know, whatever, the carbonation to die down before – Flat Mountain Dew? Flat Mountain Dew. That is that is definitely something that you would only find in a football locker room. Yeah, absolutely. Tim Salem, he's one of a kind. Um, never stops recruiting. He'll come in and show you his phone. He goes, look, look at my recruits I texted last night. Look. So this guy, hey, good luck this Friday. They're playing. He knows everyone's playing. He goes, tell your mom. Tell your mom I said hi. Uh, tell your parents he remembers everything. You guys got like an elephant brain. Remembers it all nonstop. They call him Timmy Turbo. So I remember hearing a story that he texted Israel Abanacanda like every day, like literally every single day. And that was like part of the reason why Izzy ended up sticking with Pitt after like he started to blow up. That's he's relentless. Um, he, he's relentless. A lot of, and I don't know off the top of my head, how many, like what percentage of guys that Pitt ends up getting are guys that Tim Salem initially recruited, but it's a lot. I mean, he's nonstop. They, um, our recruiting department actually stopped sending him like holiday graphics. So like say, you know, they make a, <laughs> Oh, you know, happy Thanksgiving graphic in the pit logo. You know, every holiday they come out with something something to tweet out from coach Narduzzi's account. And like, the thing is like, they'd send them out to the coaches and say, Hey, 
don't share this until after Coach Narduzzi has tweeted it. After he tweets it, then, you know, go ahead, send it out to the recruits all you want. Well, Turbo was not following that rule. He'd get them. He'd send them out. It'd be like two weeks before Thanksgiving. The graphic was done. He'd be sending them out everywhere. Um, so the recruiting department was like, no, you can't be trusted with these. You can save them off Narduzzi's tweet, but we, we need this to come from dues first. I think a similar situation uh, got Paris Ford in trouble, but but regardless. Uh, <laughs> so what what were your responsibilities then on the recruiting trail? Um, or if you got to go on the literal trail at all? Yeah, no. So in that support role, you're not you're not able to go out, uh, go to any games firsthand. It started out as a lot of, okay, here is um, player X and they don't make weekly highlight tapes, but we want to evaluate them week to week, watch their entire game. So you, you have, you know, advanced huddle access. You can go in, pick up a school's game. You're watching this player every snap, pick out their highlights so that we can condense this for the coaches um, and that way they can take a look. So I remember like Carson Van Lynn was one who every week, he didn't make a weekly highlight tape. That was my first year kind of in the recruiting. I was watching every snap Carson Van Lynn every week. Um, I think Kyle Nunn was another one. And then there were some guys like Jesse Lucetta who, you know, Pitt didn't end up landing, but has been a guy at Penn state. Like I'm watching these guys every week. Um, so that was part of the, That was kind of the film end of it that when I first started, and then recruiting weekends, it's really all hands on deck, um, helping getting the hotel organized for players coming on their visits. You know, we decorate their rooms with giving posters, candy, all that. So that was one of the responsibilities I had on that. And then just doing tours for, you know, if it's a prospect camp weekend, I'll give so-and-so a tour of this, of our recruiting facility, answer their questions, take them up to campus. Um, Maybe I'll drive. Coach Junko will be riding co-pilot, telling all stories. Um, which I don't know how, how familiar you guys were. You guys are with Coach Junko, but he's I don't know how what he is. But he's been at the program for like forty years, and he's just kind of that jolly, jolly old man that's telling jokes and telling stories that you know maybe about fifteen percent of them are true. The other eighty-five percent are completely embellished but everyone gets a kick out of him he's like the real mvp of that recruiting staff he's the he's the highlight of everyone's recruiting weekend so i get to spend a lot of time with him and uh, helping him out on those recruiting weekends as well so what are some things that uh laymen like us who only get to see the football program from you know 100 yards away might not understand about recruiting yeah, I think a big thing is just those offers that you see tweeted out, the offers you might see on someone's 24-7 profile, whatever. A lot of them are kind of BS. Um, you know, lots of times – so take a, a, a guy from Florida, for example. You know, Pitt may offer – you know, I don't know how many guys from Florida. Again, Tim Salem's probably just – he probably just offered someone from the time I started answering this question till the time I finish. He's going to send out an offer. Um Sometimes that's just to get a guy on the radar. So someone might get an offer from, from Pitt. Um, one thing they talk about a lot is committable offers versus non-committable offers. Like, okay, could you actually accept this offer? If you try to commit today, would this school accept you? And sometimes that's not the case. You know, a guy from Florida you might get an offer because that's the only way that they're going to, you're never going to get a kid from Florida to come up to Pitt for a visit when they've got all these other schools recruiting them unless you oh, throw an offer in there. 
Now all of a sudden they take you seriously. Okay. I'll come up for camp, uh, come work out for you guys at camp, or I'll come out and check out campus. I mean, then there's still an evaluation going on from there. And just evaluate the, the evaluation process is ongoing and until that dotted line is signed on signing day. Um, there's a chance it, you know, you talk about players. Oh yeah. Commitment doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to sign with that school. And, and the reverse is true as well. Um, schools need to be careful about that. You know, Pitt's not in a position um, that maybe in Alabama or Ohio State would be where they can just be like, oh, we found someone better. We're going to throw this guy away. Um, but it can happen, and it has happened. Um, and that's, that's a part of the process that you don't always see um, from, a, from that farther vantage point. So in, in like a hypothetical, um, and I think – this is something Dylan and I discussed last week. Um, let's say, you know, you have offers out to four running backs, but you only have like two spots in a recruiting class for running backs. Um, you get two guys out of those four to accept offers, sign on, commit to pit. What do you do? What do you say to the third and fourth guy, especially if one of them is, you know, kind of interested in, in possibly attending the University of Pittsburgh? How does that conversation go? Yeah. So typically there's a conversation up front. There's a, okay. Like the recruiting coaches are talking to these athletes the whole way. Like, okay, we've got two spots for receivers in this class. I'm not saying you need to commit today, but once those spots are full, they're full. So coaches can kind of leverage that at times. And that's why sometimes you see commits in bunches um, or after a big official visit weekend, or there's one spot for receiver. There's three receivers here this weekend. I'm not saying you have to commit right now, but once that spot's gone, it's gone. Um, and then, of course, you have – it's like everything else. If you're one of these top guys, um, for example, there's a four- or five-star local guy, there's no – we're finding a spot. Like, they're going to find a spot for a right. top guy. Um, and regardless of where they're from, really, like a top guy will be able to create space for you. But if you're not in that top tier, it's like, oh, we'd rather – or these two guys are pretty much interchangeable. Well, you take the one that's willing to commit to you first. So what, what about in the event that you fill up some spots um, for, you know, you're, you're full in one position group for a recruiting class, but then that four or five star you really wanted says, Hey, I, I want to play for this team. Is there ever a, a event that you would go back to someone that committed and be like, Hey, you can, our, our word is good you can your offer still stands but you'll be hard pressed to see that football field for four years any anything you know in that line yeah you know i think those conversations happen where it's like yeah we still have a spot for you but is it here's where you are here's where you stand and honestly that conversation happens a lot with guys on your, your current roster because you can, you're filling a recruiting class. If you oversign this recruiting class and you want those guys, well, then you're looking at who's on your current roster. Okay, so and so, um, you're probably not. You're going into your junior season, redshirt junior season. You got a chance to graduate. I don't know that you're going to be a contributor these next couple of years. And look, you got your degree. Had to see if there's a, a another school that's a better situation for you to get on the field. So you're always kind of projecting for that internal movement of guys already with the program as well. So that's why you will see, oh, 
they only have, you know, 17 scholarships for next year, but they signed 20 guys because, you know, someone's going to transfer because you ask them to transfer. Someone's going to transfer because they want to. Someone's going to graduate and have another year of eligibility, but they haven't seen the field and they're just ready to go sell insurance or something like go do what they use their degree for, move on from the program. Because <laughs> um, you, you tend to forget about a lot of those guys that there's a lot of upperclassmen that aren't really starters and some will want to come back for that last year because they love being a part of it. Some of them, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I did my four years. I got my free degree. Scholarship was great. I'm going to, I'm going to go on play somewhere else or just take on, take the next step in life. So on the topic of recruiting in your time at Pitt, who was the one or two players that you noticed the staff going after the hardest and did they end up getting that player? So I remember one of that first year where I was just got my foot in the door recruiting staff. Um, there were four players who we sent a postcard to that was signed by Pat Narduzzi every week. Those four players were Paris Ford, who obviously we got. You know, there were five because Paris was the class behind this group I'm about to talk about, I believe. Phil Jerkovic, who we did not get, in case you forgot. Um, Donovan Jeter. And another one was, for a short period of time, now we stopped sending mail to him pretty quickly because it, it wasn't going to happen, was DeAndre Swift. Um, that that did not last. <laughs> he didn't give Pitt the time of day. Um, he shifted down to Georgia. But yeah, I remember I, and there were postcards. So they had to, you had to put a stamp on them. The, the mailman didn't just have, we'd get like, you know, the, I don't know how the whole postage system works, but most you could just leave in this little box and USPS would come pick it up and they'd process the, the postage. But these were postcards. So you had to put a stamp on it. So I had to walk them down, you know, halfway down South Water Street to the little blue mail bin and drop them in every week. I'd read the little message. Coach Narduzzi left for the guys, signed it. <laughs> But yeah, Paris Ford was the one that we got. So those were those are some big ones, you know, some high priority guys at that time. Um, trying to think of some others that we really went after. You know, the the local guys. It, it's always going to be someone that, that they're going after strong. I know, you know, Christophic was a promotion guy we didn't end up getting who really wanted for a period of time. Jeter was another one. I think we thought they thought at the time that we we're going to get Jeter. Um, I think they knew Wade Lamont Wade was probably leaning Penn state. It was going to be tough to get him, but I think they thought they could. And didn't Jeter, if I remember correctly, he was committed to Notre Dame for about a week um, and then flipped to Michigan. And I think when he originally committed to Notre Dame, if I'm remembering this correctly, we were like, okay, that was an impulse decision on his official visit. Or that was the, not like we, like I knew anything, but that was the vibe I got in the building. And then we're like, okay, we'll stick with him. We think we can get him. Um, we don't think he's actually going to go to Notre Dame. And then like a week later, he took his official to Michigan and flipped to Michigan. And I think they were like, I don't know what this kid's um, decision-making process is like, but kind of waved the white flag at that point. Was there uh, much hope? around getting Dracovic when he was coming out? I, I think that there was. I, I really think that Notre Dame was the only school that was going to beat Pitt for him. At least that was the sense. And that you stick with them and, you know, who knows what happens. 
but I think he was pretty solid and never really wavered, but it was one where we're not going to, it doesn't hurt to continue to put that effort in on where some guys, if it's a guy, you know, you say you got a guy living in Ohio, committed to Ohio state, like, okay, yeah, we're not even going to waste the waste sending mail to him anymore. Um, but Dracovic just being a local guy, they thought maybe they could flip him. It didn't happen. So in, in that circumstance where Dracovic's head coach in high school was actually a pit grad, Eric Kasparowitz, who's now on the pit staff, how were you able to leverage that relationship to try to swing Dracovic to pit? You know, I think they put forth the effort. They try to come from every angle. Um, Notre Dame's a tough one to beat, especially Western Pennsylvania has a, for whatever reason, people love Notre Dame up there in Gibsonia. Most Catholic city in America, that's why. Yeah, yeah, a lot of lot of Notre Dame fans, a lot of Miami fans that we saw make the trip in. UNC basketball fans, yep. Long long trip down 79 South to go see their Hurricanes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think they try to leverage that, but you can only take that so far. and, you know, Dracovic, Kristoffic, with a pair of those big guys from Palm Rush and the ones in Notre Dame. You know, an interesting little tidbit that I recall, speaking of quarterbacks and recruiting trail, this was leading up to signing day before the legend that now is Kenny Pickett signed the dotted line. That was around the time Matt Canada left for LSU. So this was my first season kind of in, in the thick of things. And I remember Canada leaving. I do not believe we had uh, signed an offense coordinator yet. And UNC was trying to swoop in on Kenny late. And the rumor was that Kenny grew up a UNC fan. So there was a lot of kind of like near signing day panic that Kenny might flip. UNC's coming in. Um, Coach Narduzzi went and smoothed that out. And luckily, uh, we, we see Kenny Pickett in the, in the blue and gold every Saturday instead of, you know, who knows what happened if he ended up down there at UNC. Um, I never verified any of that with, with Kenny, but I do remember talks around the office at that time that there's a little bit of, uh-oh, what's UNC going to do? We don't have an offensive coordinator. We really need to get Kenny to commit to Coach Narduzzi in the program without knowing exactly who his OC was going to be. Then we bring an offensive guru, Sean Watson, to save the day. That's right. And Kenny, he stuck with it through all that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, he, he buried in there. So you you got to work with a within a certain proximity to Sean Watson, um, who I think a lot of Pitt fans consider um, quite a mistake as an offensive coordinator, as someone with eyes on the inside, what did you make of the Sean Watson era? Um, I mean, I think the results were, were there that kind of speak for themselves a little bit. I, I liked, you know, Sean Watson was a good guy. The offense did not perform very well under him. And when they moved on, Mark Whipple, it seems to have things going. Um, I think, you know, Kenny Pickett, was extremely talented from day one. And I think it's, it's really nice now to see an offense and offensive talent around him that really allows him to showcase his abilities. That was a very polite answer. Thank you. 
So over your three years within the program, uh, what were some of the improvements you saw internally, whether that's culture, facilities, um, talent, you know, what, what did you see improving through the program? Uh, facilities, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a kind of one that's real easy to see, obviously, because that's, that's very tangible. Um, when they would show pictures of what it was, even when like the, the 2014 season, to 2016 it was like night and day like they they had been sitting in like folding chairs in a team room now they have this fancy auditorium seating with logos all over the place um there's like some fancy i don't know how much it cost chandelier hanging from the entryway with seven crystal seven what we got nine national championships nine nine crystal balls for all nine national championships um the cafe is impressive, upgrading team meeting rooms. So that's something that I, I know that was big on Nar- for Narduzzi when he got in was like these facilities are not up to the standard that it's going to take to compete at a power five level. So that was big on him. And, um, you know, once Heather White got there, I think she was all on board with giving them whatever they wanted to improve facilities and things of that nature. I do think the caliber of player has increased steadily. I think they're starting to get, at least on the defensive side and and more offensively too, like a a little bit of an identity, um, the type of guys that they want. I know that first year, or not the first year, but the first year I was there, 2016, that was the year where Matt Canada and that offense were scoring 45 points a game, but we couldn't stop anybody. Like we were really like one – fade like jump defending a freaking fade away from in three different games from being a 10-win team instead of an eight-win team and I think they just didn't quite have those those big defensive backs that Narduzzi likes in that system I think they've come a long way in that regard um I think there's a lot more continuity now with the coaching staff um which is has been big I think the program has developed in that way from things that I've heard from people I still know in there, they enjoy working there more than they did a few years ago. I think they've kind of found a rhythm and Coach Narduzzi's program has found a little bit of a rhythm there. Um, but all, all, all those are things that seem to have changed from even from Narduzzi's first year to, you know, I can't speak on the past couple of seasons, but. So nowadays you're officiating high school football in Texas. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I'm down here in the Dallas area. Um, just first year down here, getting getting my fix of football in a different way than I was a few years ago doing a little officiating. It's not as good as the whoopie, right? It's it's different. All right. That's, all that's, right. There's a positive spin on that. It's different. You mentioned you saw uh, Pitt commit Marquand Pope. Yeah, yeah. A couple, couple weeks ago, I got I got to see Marquand Pope, which was he he impressed me. You know, I. I don't follow recruiting as much as I obviously did when I was working there, kind of would check out 24-7 every once in a while. But got a chance to see him. He's on a, like, state championship contender, one of the bigger high schools in the area, Dunn Geyer. He plays safety for them. I think he's being recruited to play, like, that star linebacker position, um, kind of more athletic, you know, guy with some DB skills, but big enough to play in the box a little bit. And – I, I was impressed with what I saw. He got a uh, – with a pick six. So he had a pick six, came down, made a nice play on the ball, housed it, 
Um, but what I was, I was telling Dylan this um, earlier before we hopped on. I don't, I don't know if I did tell you, but this is what I was referencing. So I'm, I'm there and I'm on the field before the game and I see a guy in Michigan State polo. And I'm going to make small talk. And keep bear in mind, like Denton Geyer, their quarterback is, I think he's a 2023 class. He's a current sophomore. He's got offers from everyone. He's the real deal. Like this Denton Geyer roster, they got a DB who's, just got a Bama offer last week. They're they're loaded, so it's no surprise you see a big time you know Power Five football coach down there on the sideline. But I see a guy, Michigan State, and the director of football operations when I was at Pitt, a guy guy by the name of Ben Mathers, who's a Michigan State guy. He's now back at Michigan State. So a guy I work closely with. I'm just you know making small talk with the guy, asked him if he knows Ben. He said, Yeah, Ben's a great guy. This and that, whatever. Go our several ways, game's going on. Marquand Pope has this pick six. So, I mean, I'm pretty fired up. You know, see, see my pick guy make pick six. And I'm walking by the Michigan State coach on the sideline, and I just, you know, give him a little – just messing around. It's like, he better not be trying to flip that – you know, I think Marquand's number 33. He better not be trying to flip that 33 from Pitt now. You saw that pick six. And he's just laughing, and I'm like, okay, you know, I move on. I don't know who the guy is. I just know he's got Michigan State stuff on I go in the locker room during halftime and I'm, you know, looking up the Michigan state coaching staff to see who this identify exactly who this guy is. And I see it's their linebackers coach. So now I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit skeptical. This might, I was just, you know, jagging them off, but this might legitimately be what this guy's here to do. So I texted my people back at Pitt. I'm like, Hey, I don't know if this is anything to worry about, but Michigan state linebacker coach is here watching our boy, Marquand Pope. Uh, so made sure I tipped off, tipped off our forces back home. And I gave him a, I, I gave Mark Warren a little hail to pit. I yeah, hail to pit. And he goes, what? Like you, you could tell he's not used to hearing that down here. I don't know how many people are, are pit fans walking around. So I said, hail to pit. He goes, hell yeah. <laughs> so we can, whenever we fight off the Michigan state coming in late, we can go back to me yelling hail to pit at him. And I'll get an assist on that one. I think you yelling hail to Pitt will outweigh uh, Michigan State making the playoff this year. So good work. Yeah, no, I agree. It's the little things in life, right? Yeah. You're quite the loyal son. I do what I can. We got boots on the ground down here in Dallas now. That's good to hear. Um, So hopefully, you know, Pitt can hang on to Pope. Um, But what is is something that you've seen out of Pitt that we do better in terms of recruiting than – your average school what is like our specialty in that regard one thing that it's and it's big and we beat recruits over the head with it when they come to campus this is the only place in the country where you're going to be right next door to nfl pro franchise pittsburgh steelers and Pitt panthers share a facility now sharing heinz field people might use that as a disadvantage people want that on campus stadium but in terms of the practice facilities being shared with them that is 100 percent uh advantage for pit um we, you know i remember just saying i remember coaches would say you can go to some of these other schools and they can tell you what it's like what it takes to be a pro what working out and practicing like a pro looks like you can come to pit and when you're on that practice field and you see you know Ben Roethlisberger, Marquise Pouncey, Joe Hayden, all these guys, you can actually watch with your own 
what it looks like to practice like a pro and what it's like to be a pro. And Mike Tomlin is awesome. Like he'd come over to talk to the team about once a year. Um, you're not going to get that anywhere else. And that's something that Pitt really sells. And it's really, uh, that ends up putting Pitt over the top for a lot of kids. And I think they mentioned that, you know, when they're doing their recruiting interviews on Panther Lair and things of that nature, um, is, is that relationship with the Steelers. And, and then on top of that, it's just like selling the city of Pittsburgh. We Pitt has a pretty high hit rate when they get a guy on an official visit. Um, it, it's not always easy to get guys on official visit because it's not that sexy. You know, we haven't, we're not maybe as big a brand as some of the other places, but when you get them to Pitt and sell them on the city and just like the life skills program that Pitt has, it's above and beyond what a lot of other programs do. It kind of separates Pitt and a summer official visit. Would you rather be in Pittsburgh or Happy Valley where there's more cows than people on a, on a June summer? And Pittsburgh, we can take you on the Gateway Clipper and check out the city and, and all of that. It's, it's really, a, really an advantage that Pitt has. It's really mean of you to talk about Penn State women. That's right. There you go. You caught it. <laughs> no, I, I imagine, you know, the the – physical proximity to the Steelers and their facilities uh, compounded with the fact that no middle tier college football program outside of us is producing NFL talent the way that we are. I mean, when you look at our hall of famers and and guys making noise in the league, we're up there with the teams that are competing for championships every year. So I imagine, you know, the NFL pipeline is, is something you can really sell uh, pit recruits on. Yeah, and, and that's the – at the end of the day, I remember in the former strength coach, Dave Andrews, he's now at Iowa State, um, but I remember he would always tell recruits, like, when you go to college, you know, if you're a regular student, you go to college, you get your education, you want to do an internship. In an internship, you know, you're kind of watching and seeing how people – you know, if you're, you're a, I don't know, a law intern, you're working in a law office, you're watching to see what a lawyer does on a daily basis. Well, here you're getting an NFL internship because you're watching what the Steelers are doing. And I always thought that was a – he sold that really well, and it really resonated with a lot of athletes, but then the parents as well. They, they love that. Then on top of that, you have Aaron Donald coming in and working out with knives and putting his name all over the facility and lifting weights in the offseason. Yeah, I mean, he that. still comes back, which is, is amazing, that dude. He plays for L.A., a lot of people would just say peace and they'd be in Southern California year round. He comes to, to Pittsburgh to do his workouts in the same, same old facility. And it's, it's invaluable whenever you see him walking around and recruits get a chance to see him. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Your recruiting duties, uh, watching the film, doing that grunt work, being, you know, boots on the ground for these coaches. Um, that's all fun and good, but you had some other responsibilities uh, in your time at Pitt. One specifically is I know you were the practice DJ and uh, also maybe locker room DJ from time to time. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, practice DJ, locker room DJ. If you asked uh, a lot of the players probably during that time what Cage does, they probably say, oh, yeah, he plays the music at practice because, you know, a lot of the that, – that was like one of the, my most visible roles. Um <laughs> So you get a lot of, I mean, it's, it's a fun job. You take a lot of heat, you know, if that defense is going your second practice of the day and you play something a little too slow for their like, and they'd let you hear about it. 
Um, offense was a little more laid back, but you get a lot of requests all the time um, from different players. And there's some that you know to ignore. And there's some that's like, all right, if I don't play this freaking song, this dude's going to beat my ear off about it all day. So I'm going to go play something for him. Um, but that, yeah, that was a good time. Uh, definitely enjoyed that. Yeah. I remember Paris Ford was one. He Paris didn't have a ton of requests all the time. Well, when he did, he was very, um, very passionate about it. He wanted to hear a particular song. I remember him running up one time. And this was, I want to say this was the early in 2018 season. Now, you know, they, those guys, they like listening to their rap, hip hop, this and that. So I try to follow along with it. It's not something I, I listen to a little bit of it, but not, not something I follow along with closely. So this was before... The baby was getting big at the time, but he was not the household name that he is now. So Paris runs up to me. He goes, yo, 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 play that the baby. And I, I'm like, what? Like I knew little baby, like little baby goes, no, no, the baby. I said, I'm sorry. Like, what are you? Who? He goes, no, no, D A B B Y. And he goes, you don't know the baby? I was like, I don't know. He goes, oh, everybody knows the baby. Go play that the baby. So then I, I played that the baby. I played Suge, which was a hit. And we ended up playing that a lot, practice, practices that year. But that, that's still like a running joke I have with my friends. Anytime the baby comes on, we just go, everybody knows the baby. How about um, after the UVA game? It was blaring through the press conference. Yeah, that UVA game. That was um, the Friday night game in that 2018 season which I don't think it clinched the coast. We did not clinch the coastal yet, but we pretty much like that was a huge one because Virginia was one of the, the top teams and there was a Friday night game and there was rain and it was, I remember there was a lot of like barking going on, on the field before the game. So there was a lot of emotions. Uh, Patrick Jones got ejected on kind of a, if I remember like a BS targeting call that game. Horrible. So people were, people were pretty fired up after that one. And Elm Street by Jimmy Wapo was another one that they, the guys really enjoyed listening to. So I put on Elm Street and blasting it. Like we're blowing these speakers out. And I remember seeing on Twitter and Dylan, you actually sent this to me at the time. You sent me a tweet and it was, you just said like, don't you play the like, music for Pitt? And I'm like, yeah. And then I, list, I looked at the tweet and it's, I can't remember if it's Bronco Mendenhall or I think it's one of the UVA whoever doing their post-game press conference. And, you know, they're real sad. They just, you know, lost a big game. And all you can hear, like, you can barely hear these players speaking over his Elm Street, like, blasting through these whatever paper-thin walls they had at UVA. So that was that was a good uh, DJ memory there. Yeah, we used that clip to try to justify uh, replacing Sweet Caroline with Elm Street. So thank you for offering us that moment. I actually wrote an article for the Come On Network guys uh, last year about which song should replace Sweet Caroline and use your clip. So thank you for that ammunition. Let's go. Yeah, no, that, that would be a good one. Unfortunately, RIP WAPO, there's no, there's no clean version of it. So Pitt has a rebound game in Durham this weekend against Duke. Uh, do you have any predictions for that game? Uh, is Pitt starting a slide or do you think they are going to get some frustrations out against the Blue Devils? Um. This is my kind of off-the-cuff prediction without putting too much thought into it. I'm going to go 38-13 Panthers. 
I think they're, they'll win. I think they'll win handily. I think there'll be a little bit of those, uh-oh, I really would like to see us clean this up, but it's not going to matter because we're playing Duke. Um, and, and we're going to walk out with a, with a nice little win. Hopefully no injuries and get ready for following week. That's, that's going to be my prediction now. And to follow up on that, what is your prediction for Kenny Pickett's stat line? We asked this for all of our guests. And uh, we'll have to go back and check the tape, but didn't Elijah Zayas predict over 500 yards for Kenny Pickett? <laughs> Maybe we'll have, to, we'll have to rewind a little bit. It was a sad 500, though, so I don't know if that counts. Are going to do um, completions and incompletions or just yardage touchdowns? However you want to do it. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to say Kenny's going to throw for – let's go with – 372 and three touchdowns. No turnovers. I think he'll a lot of those numbers will be in the first half. I think they'll run the football in the second half. Um that that's gonna be what I go with. I hope you're right because I, I can't handle a, a nail biter at noon this Saturday against Duke. I, I, I need us to just simply go in and take out the frustrations I, th- I think i think narduzzi i don't know i i could see him trying to run it up a little put up 60 get, get back into the rankings for next week we might need a hundred to do that my predictions are historically bad though so don't uh don't put too much stock into these predictions well in that case can you please uh do it over again but predicted duke victory Never. I respect that. Well, Cage, we, we really appreciate uh, all these insights into the inner workings of uh, the program, especially recruiting. Uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck uh, officiating those uh, Texas high school games. I bet there's a little bit more pressure from the parents and those than you'd find up here. And uh, just don't go missing any calls. They all have guns. I'll do my best. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks a lot. Um, Hail to Pitt, and let's get back on the winning side of things this week. All right, that's enough for this episode. Let's get our picks and get the f*** out of here. Cut. Next! All right. Going down to Durham, playing the Dukes. Big opportunity for a uh, get-right game here. What are you guys thinking? 55 to nothing. Because if for nothing else, I will be miserable if we don't stomp their heads in. UNC beat this team 38-7. Virginia beat this team 48 to nothing. Wake Forest beat this team 45-7. Pitt is going to be pissed off. Notice is going to be pissed off. I'm going 63 to 13. Yeah, the last uh, last time an angry and fired up pit team played a uh, overmatched opponent, we put up 11 touchdowns. Uh, that was New Hampshire, who I think is a little bit worse than Duke, but maybe only a little bit worse than Duke. 
I'm gonna go with uh, like a, a nice fifty-four to ten. I I think Narduzzi has shown if he if he's gonna have the opportunity to blow uh, some steam off, he will. We did it against New Hampshire. We did it against Georgia Tech. I I hope we do it again against Duke. Uh, Pickett stat lines. Pickett going to bounce back. It's going to go. Let's go 26 for 35. 320 yards and three touchdowns. Um, so he's playing one half is your prediction? I, I think for the most part we're going to take the air out of the ball in the second half, run the ball a good bit, um, and the damage will have been done to the, to the Blue Devils. I'm going uh, 392 yards. Doesn't get 400, unfortunately, but he'll throw for five touchdowns. I'm actually going to go 250 and two touchdowns, but I think I think Izzy and uh, Rodney Hammond combined for 200 yards. Little bull prediction there for you. I'm just kidding. Pickett's going to throw for 404 touchdowns. And then Izzy and Hammond are going to combine for 200 yards. Yeah, why not both? Run it up, Herman. Leave no doubt. Nothing bad has ever happened to Pitt fans who got greedy, so it'll be fine. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Thank you for listening to the Loyal Sons Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Cable Faithful. Subscribe to us anywhere you listen to your podcast. Give us a like, subscribe, and give us a rating, if, if you'd be so kind. This week, the Panthers head down to Durham, North Carolina to take on the Duke Blue Devils. We need a little bit of a revenge this week. We need to show everyone that these Pitt Panthers are different. Please win. As always, hail loyal sons of Pittsburgh. Please win. Please. By a lot. A hundred. Turn out the lights. Please. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night. The party's over. And tomorrow starts the same old thing again.